Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the pleasure of bringing Clive Brewer back on the show to continue the conversation that we had in episode 65. And we'll also have Informed Performance's own Mr. Ben Ashworth joining us to create some more practical dialogue and back and forth between us all. In this episode, myself, Clive and Ben will be discussing evidence-based practice, change management, performance diagnostics and more. I'd like to say a big thanks to everybody who read the Informed Performance Digital Magazine. If you would like to find a place to showcase your thoughts and ideas, be that through opinion posts, academic reviews, letters to the editor or whatever style you prefer to write in, then Informed Performance is now launching an articles page on our website where if you work within elite sport or you have an influence on elite sport, then we welcome you, the listener, to become a contributor. To find out more, head to our website, informperformance.com. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyze neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to Informed Performance with me, Andy McDonald, and let's get into today's episode between myself, Clive Brewer, and Ben Ashworth. Ben, hello, mate, and Clive, welcome back to uh, part two of you being on the show. So... When you were last on, we didn't quite finish the episode and there was, uh, in the sense that there was a couple of topics we didn't get around to chatting about. So obviously we're back today and, uh, and, we're, and we're with Ben as well. So we'll try and thrash out those performance related discussions that we missed last time. But yeah, welcome back to the show. Great to be back on. And I, I know that the discussion is going to be enhanced significantly We're having Ben as part of it. I'm just here to uh, coast our Clive. So uh, yeah, welcome back, mate. So we'll kind of, the first one of the kind of topics that we didn't hit last time was around evidence-based practice in sport. Um, in the in the medical world, evidence-based practice is a sort of triangle made up of uh, key considerations, and that's the, the best available evidence, clinical experience of the practitioner, and then the patient's values or expectations. Then clinical decision-making kind of sits between those three entities, hopefully. Um, how does this kind of visual heuristic apply to high performance as you see it or or perhaps the other roles that support athletes uh, look I, I mean I think I completely agree with that I don't think it's it, I don't think it's much different in in all honesty in terms of how we approach things what I would what I would kind of suggest is there's a there's maybe maybe not the this the science behind what we do maybe isn't as defined if that makes sense and because the because things are much more broad in the performance terms then it's very difficult to actually say yes there's defined clinical evidence behind each one of these distinct factors so what i tend to talk about is much more um sort of evidence informed practice rather than evidence based if that makes sense and i think that that largely comes in with the you know the the clinical reasoning and the experience of the practitioner that's involved. Uh, and I think the other thing that we see in science a lot or see in the appliance of it is is actually um, practiced informed evidence. So, you know, it's 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 those two, the, you know, it's a it's a new and novel science and emerging science. And it's a, 
you know, sports science as such, people people say they define it. I, for me, it's it's more about what is the science of sport, i.e. we're all there to make the performers better in that context, right? We're bringing in realms of expertise in to enhance what the player needs to be a better performer. And so what we're trying to do all the time is to say, how can we bring all this knowledge of variables and and stuff that, that may be identified in the lab, but what you see in a lab isn't necessarily replicative of what we see in performance and what we see on the field. You know, we, you can't isolate variables. You can't define variables. So um, it's about assimilating those things, bringing it together and then moving it through. But at the same point in time, you know, the, the key point, the apex of the medical pinnacle about the, the patient's values and expectations is no different. Um, the, the player's needs, wants and desires has to be, you know, that's the focus of everything that we're trying to do. There may just be more people involved in that discussion, for example, coaches, front office and their expectations um, around it. And also increasingly agents and, uh, you know, as well as part of that picture. Ben, how, how does that how does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think that's um, spot on the way I was thinking about that, too. I think it does. It does. Um, coming at it from a point of view of sort of trying to solve a problem. Um resonate entirely so you know if i'm looking for an answer to solve a performance problem i'm going to look and see if there's any evidence available and if there's some great evidence available that applies to my context and my environment then i'm going to apply it if not i'm going to either use my own experience or probably reach out to my network and have people that know more about this problem than i do and then balance the available evidence with the um with the network answer, the phone a friend answer. Um, and and then I'm going to make my decisions based on the context and the environment. So like you describe, I think, uh, you know, when, when you're looking at it, it, it is athlete, athlete centered uh, and then probably coach led to a certain extent, depending upon, depending upon the environment you're working in. Um, but I think you've hit the nail on the head there, mate. Yeah, I mean, the thing I really love is is also having like, you know, the environments that we work in as well is you've got your own internal network that you're also trying to establish and bring on board. You know, you've got the nutritionist, you've got the medical staff, you've got the strength staff, you've got, and it's it's like, how do you bring all those experiences together and with the respective evidence bases that they that they each have to be able to move this through? I was in a discussion last night with a, with a coach of a, an Olympic runner I'm working with at the minute and trying to break down that he was saying, look, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing this from a technical perspective. Can we advance the the technique without the strength or what will that do? You know, and, 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 and how, and, and trying to put, to put together a curriculum about, you know, the guy's got an underlying condition. How can we, how can we advance the strength without, it, it has to making the, the, the acute condition worse if that, or, or else making a resolved condition acute again. If that makes sense, and um, but address the technical needs as well. And it was a really fascinating discussion with with medical staff, with coaches, uh, the psychologist as well in there talking about where does where does visualization come into the skill learning because the guys got habits that we need to break. It was and, and those sorts of things that that's, that really stimulates it from a broad. There's a real broad base of evidence that comes in, and and I think that you know you also have to think about the evidence that's around us. So. I, I remember a really good learning experience I had back in the dark ages um, when I met David Martin for the first time. And it was, I was in the UK. It was 
guys probably early two 2000s and he was he was with the Australian Institute of Sport over the time and he, he'd come to uh, the center I was working at um, and we got into discussing cycling which is the main program he was responsible for in, in Australia at the time the point he made was really fascinating it was a real and again I was a young practitioner at the time was that if you looked at the research papers of endurance cycling the the vo2 max of the athletes was about 64 milliliters per kilogram per minute right in the research papers as an average he, he, he said I don't even see a cyclist until they get above 72 73 millimeters per kilogram per minute it's a completely different they at that point they've got completely different blood-based parameters their physiology is massively different so my coach doesn't really want to know about the physiology that underpins it or this that, and the other he wants to know what's going to make a difference to this athlete winning gold or not but what I can do is to say, okay, if I extrapolate the methods that have been isolated in the research and seen the results they have, then I then I take my knowledge of physiology and apply it to that and say, would I expect the same results in my athletes with 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 you know with different blood parameters, different cellular levels, uh, etc.? Then do I say yes, I think I want to replicate that, or do I say no, that probably only worked in that context because of the, this athlete's physiology? And that that rationalization and the process and, and really looking at what is the evidence, what were the methods, what are my athletes, and how am I going to simulate the two to make a decision of go, no go, then you know, I think that's that 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 for me was a really interesting interesting experience and opportunity. And I think the other the other thing that underpins that as well is the ability to reflect on it. And one of the things I love about the, you know the, the clinical practice model that we learn from medicine is the process of differential diagnosis, you know, and the reasoning, the, the clinical reasoning that underpins. And I think that's something that we need to apply a lot more of. And I know certainly teams I've worked with is a lot more about, you know, why do we think this is going to work? Did it work? Yes, do more. No, don't do it again. Find a different pathway. Um, and, and that, that, that simple process, I think is something that I, you know, over the last 10 years of the people I've been working with is something that's really helped and benefited the processes that we put in place. Um, as a bit of a segue, you know, your, your example from David Martinez is really interesting. And I think probably, probably resonates with a lot of people in elite sport, where if you look at the research, it's probably being done on athletes most of the time that are not at the level necessarily as the athletes that you're working with at the elite end. Um, how, you know, I'm, I'm curious for both of you knowing that, and, and obviously there is papers where they have used elite performers, but how do you kind of mesh together the level that the research is done at in terms of the athlete that it's studying, but then make it applicable in your setting? So if I get you right there, Andy, what you're saying is that a lot of the research that's out there is performed on drunken uh, university students and therefore doesn't apply to the sharp end elite athlete. Um, no, I'm, I'm putting words in your <laughs> mouth, but that, that came from a conversation I had with someone who was a little bit put out that basically practitioners in elite sport were making decisions based off research, which maybe maybe took a snapshot in a lab once a year, that the athletes that were part of that group or cohort were not homogenous with the population that in any way resembled an athletic population. And then if you narrow it down even further, to look at the individual variation between athletes in the same sport in terms of height, weight, lever length, the physiological characteristics and all the rest that make them individuals within those sports. 
I think actually you have to use that process to take evidence and then apply it with the context you've got in front of you, because otherwise you're you're not doing what's right and ideal for that n equals one that's sitting in front of you. And to give you an example, um, prior to the prior to the London 2012 Olympics, we had a number, and I was working in a sport which I didn't, you know, I'm not an expert in. It was judo, and you know, if you Google search, how do you rehab a left-handed under 78 kilogram female over the top technique judo player with a with a labral tear um, in under sort of 16 weeks to get her back to competition you will not find anything out there that's going to help you in any way shape or form write a program or put together a process so you have to be willing to draw your own map and you have to start to take those steps but you're you're using best available evidence to give your best um guess if you like i mean that's essentially what you're doing but the thing that sits alongside that is exactly as clive describes this kind of feedback loop and however you want to feedback to yourself or the group you're in to show that you're progressing is up to you but setting up that monitoring process low tech or high tech doesn't matter is a key part of understanding whether you're going in the right direction or not when you're trying to solve that n equals one problem yeah, and I think that's the that that for me hits the nail on the head. Is is uh, you know, research is is typically driven by um, a hypothesis, right? Um, and you're trying to disprove it or you know agree with the hypothesis. And we take a different approach in sport, which is the fact that the the, the problem is the unique thing, and there isn't there isn't a there isn't a hypothesis that fits typically your team or your you know etc um it's more about how do i and and the problem actually is 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 different for each player so you know if you if you're working in the context of soccer for example and you've got uh two center forwards who have got completely different um physio physiomechanical qualities one's one's five foot eight one's six foot seven um and One's pretty powerful in the air, but has got a, a history of hamstring tears. And the other is really fast and a good vertical, but not much body mass. Then the way you play the ball to them, where how the team is going to structure formations around them, all those kind of things are going to be very, very different. And so the 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 problem that arises, you can't, they're both centre forwards, right? You can't, you can't just extrapolate that down to it. Um so what is what is the problem you're trying to solve? And it's something that uh, it comes up in a lot of discussions. You know, I I, I was uh, discussing the thing the other day with some with some people about technology, and their approach was, well, you got this technology, and what do you think of that? Or this technology, what do you think of that? And I was like, well, hang on a minute, what what is the problem you're trying to solve, right? And if you can identify the problem that you're trying to solve, then you can say, well, what are the various approaches and, and break it down to that problem? So. Um, a classic might be, for example, uh, how do you hit a fastball, right? In in baseball, it's the you know, and baseball is a game of failure, right? There's, you 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 achieve thirty percent of success as a hitter, and you're in the Hall of Fame, you know. So uh, it's it's a game of failure. So how do you reduce the failures that the hitter has when he's at the plate, and increase the chances of hitting a ninety mile an hour fastball? And th- there's a number of ways you can do that. One is one is to look at the technique the player has. So, um, 
you know, can you enhance his swing and his approach to the ball and give him more, you know, give him more exit velocity as he contacts the ball and, and that kind of thing. Or you can uh, look at the vision that the player has and say, do we enhance his vision? Does it need correction? Or do we enhance the way that the visual stimulus is getting to the brain and changing the, the decision that he has? Or can you utilize a technology such as a um, right eye technology where you can actually track where the player is looking at and make sure he's looking at the right cue in the first place? So there's a range of technological solutions depending upon what part of the program, the, the problem that you're actually trying to attempt to solve. Um, the key thing usually is it comes down to what do we think using our either experiential knowledge, and I think we talked about it last time, but the biggest data set in any organization is the experiential knowledge of the coaches and those around you, right? So going back to our discussion earlier on, we, it's why you rely on the expertise in the team and you bring everyone's perspective in is because someone somewhere will have seen this problem before, right? So how do we utilize the best information available to us to say, what is the critical intervention that's going to make the biggest difference to this player at this time? Um, and try that before we try and say, look, we're going to throw everything at this player and hope something works. Because if we don't know what works, we don't know what to do more of or less of. And, you know, the player doesn't benefit from that approach. While we're on kind of um, and skirting around technology as a bit of a to- uh, sort of side topic, um, we've had many conversations on the podcast where people have discussed kind of uh, the fundamentals of why they would bring in technology to solve a problem and, and the questions that they ask uh, in doing so. To bring in something new, whether that is technology or whether that's just a new way of doing things, a new method or set of systems, you might have to transfer old systems to new systems or or even perhaps delete as such, some of the old processes that you used. Um, you know, when you're in that kind of director of performance or head of department role, how do you how do you kind of strategically go about uh, changing those systems? So not just implementing new things, but maybe getting rid of some of the old processes, perhaps because research, you know, indicates you should do so. So I think, you know, coming coming at it from a an example from a practitioner standpoint so when I was at physio at Arsenal um, and we were looking at a monitoring process as an example the thinking behind it was to look at uh, let's take groin squeeze as an example you're on a ductor squeeze test and we used a sphig cuff and we we did that and we also used a sphig cuff for the hamstring squeezes at the same time so our monitoring process was embryonic it was pilot based and we were looking at surveillance over a period of time. And what we found was that although we were getting some good information on maybe two out of 28 players, um, we needed something which was uh, probably more accurate and also could give us more scope or bandwidth to detect changes in force, force of our higher force producing players. So we'd had probably a year's worth of data at that point on, on both of those tests. And so some of the team sat there and said, well, yeah, it's a shame to get rid of the data that we've just built up. We've got over 100 tests on some of these players. Um, but if there's something better, then you should change that immediately. So, you know, and we had these discussions and we all agreed that the better thing to do was to go to, in fact, we decided at the time to go to a force platform with, um, with regard to testing hamstrings. 
and that we were comfortable that we were getting enough information off our adductor squeezes with the sphig cuff at that point so that we shifted to the to the hamstring test on the force platform because it gave us better information to make decisions and we basically were we tried to correlate the two and we did all sorts with some data science behind it but really we just had to scrap what we'd built up but it was a better process and so i think in terms of making that change it's understanding that you do what's best for you at that time point that said a year later we moved and shifted across to to uh, groin squeezes using the force frame you know and i think that was again because in our evolution as an organization that was the right time to change it we found that we weren't getting uh, so much good information or accurate information from the from the groin squeeze but we use data science to make that decision. And I think that's probably a really nice way of doing it. It's trying to back it up so that you're not just looking at opinion, you're looking at facts. And if the facts suggest that you should change now, then don't be scared about moving to a new technology. Um, I would say then, you know, that my own personal journey and where I've come to around sort of shoulder testing stuff, largely looked at a paper which actually hits your question really nicely, which is basically bringing clinometrics paper from Franco Impelletieri. And he talks about when you bring a new test in is to look at some simple stages. Is it valid? So what's the sort of validity, ecological validity of that new equipment? Is it reliable or interchangeable, repeatable? Is it sensitive to change? So, you know, are you looking at... Um, do you trust and are you looking at what meaningful change is? Do you know what signal and noise is within that test? And then is it interpretable? So it, does it take you two hours to turn it around and therefore not give you actionable information at the right time? So I think those are now the key considerations I look. This is quite a broad spectrum. Those are the key considerations I would look at in summary. It would be if it's the right time to change it, do it now. Make sure it ticks all those boxes along the way and make sure it works for your team that they can cope with it to turn around the information because you know you have to measure the things that matter and for me if you're measuring stuff on athletes and you're not using it to inform decisions they'll find you out pretty quickly and you will lose their compliance and it's probably that's a long-winded answer but i think it covers off my kind of think thought process around that sounds sounds like a bit of a balancing act between kind of like uh, being an early adopter when you need to because the research and the the science indicates, but then also kind of balancing balancing that out with you know the sort of sunken cost fallacy of well, we've got longitudinal data, we've put this much time in, let's carry it on. It sounds like a bit of a it's quite a hard thing to weigh up probably in the moment. I think it is, and what what Ben said that I think is really important in that is that you actually don't disregard the stuff that you've got previously because there's a you make a really good rationale for change. Right, you understand the return on investment in that, both in terms of you know equipment costs, time, and and the necessary change process that you, you need to go through. But you don't throw away what you had. And there's a side project there where he said, you know, you went back and revisit the data and correlated with. And I think that's a natural process of evolution that you that you follow through, in terms of that. And in understanding it, the. I was in a discussion last night with someone who said, like, you know, I daily monitor I don't think works, you know. And I was like, well, and, and in their setting in the university, it probably doesn't because they're looking at across a, a wide number of teams. And the the turnaround time for analysis and feedback to the player 
is not going to matter, you know. And similarly, I've I've been in situations where, you know, I've said to, you know, I've been in a consulting role or something and I've said to someone, look, if we give you this information about the player, are you going to change practice on the day? And they said, no, absolutely not. And they said, well, there's no point in collecting the information then, you know. But I think in any situation where where I've worked as the practitioner, you know, in lead roles and, you know, we, we may have three or four years of data, but I will always change if there's a better way of doing it and understand that. But the one thing that the players always knew was um, the example. And if you look at Columbus, for example, as a typical working practice, the players would come in in the morning and on certain days we'd do a groin squeeze, on the days we'd do a jump. They'd submit their muscle soreness scores, their energy scores, um, etc. There was five things we asked them to, to submit in terms of questions. And then we had their HRV and sleep data from, uh, you know, from the, the sensors that we asked them to wear overnight. So, Literally, their commitment to us in the morning in terms of testing was maybe 15 seconds. It was either a cold jump or a cold squeeze, right? But by the time I'd seen all their data on their dashboard, I could understand where they were relative to their norm for soreness, energy levels, etc. I could understand was there variance in their jump height or their, their peak power output and I, or, or groin squeeze, in fact. And I, could, I knew whether they slept well the night before and what their neuromuscular status was like through their HRV. And if I if I saw a deviance in, in any of those that would enable me to question it, then it would be a case of I'd go and discuss with the player, you know, and it's letting them know that I'd seen the data. And look, in the vast majority of cases, we didn't, the, the player, the idea was, how do we get this player? I've got an hour between getting this data and the player starting training, right? So what do I need to do to get the player on the training field. I think it's a fallacy to think that we use this information for the player not to train, right? Because we we don't. But how do I best help this player? Is it in terms of, look, he had a bad night's sleep. Can we actually put him in the sleep room for 20 minutes and get him a power nap now and then give him a coffee, give him a, you know, give him a caffeine power nap so that we do his best to get him out there? That's an extreme example. But does he need something on the treatment table? Is there something nutritionally we can do? Is there something that we need to, to do in the weight room to, to energize him, for example, or, or get his neuromuscular system waked up? And and probably the most extreme example might be to the coach. And I remember doing this a number of occasions and going, look, this player's got a tight um, a tight quad on his left leg, not concerned about it. Don't think it's, don't think it's an injury situation. But what would be really good is if in this practice where he's got to do lots of deceleration and direction changes, actually, could we just put him as a feeder? You know, and and so you ma- you help him manage the player in the aspect of the drill that might exacerbate where we think the problem lies, and and then then it's down to the coach to, to determine how much that influences and affects his session and, and and make a decision from there. But the idea of doing all the all these testing is is that we actually influence what follows it, and that's that's the purpose. It's not to collect the data and see if it was good data or not. We we got to get those processes ironed out well in advance. Yeah, and I think, Clive, that monitoring piece, you know, why would we do daily monitoring? I think you're trying to build a, a longitudinal picture that accounts for athletes' ability to change as well, either improve or deteriorate. Um, so that athlete state is very important. So if we measure people at the beginning of the season and leave them and, you know, expect that to tell us whether they're going to be good or bad throughout the year, it's, it's, it's a flawed way of thinking for me. And that's why... I think monitoring is is really important. But the interesting thing from my perspective, and certainly I can talk to recent times, is so 
you know, I can I can talk about it, but like yesterday we uh, we had our fourth head coach employed at the current team I'm working for as director of performance, and that's in under 24 months. So the way that we monitor is absolutely 100% driven by the willingness and education and relationships and all those other things that go into that management of the process that must be um, in conjunction with the head coach because you know one of the players in a previous regime came to me and said I will not fill out that morning data anymore on the iPhone app that we sent him with a sliding scale to 20 seconds I will not fill that out because the head coach will not act on it please don't ask me to fill that out again until we have a new head coach and and that wasn't the reason for the change of head coach by the way um but I I sat there and I thought you know okay if that's his individual decision and that's his reason then I'm not going to enforce him to to put in data which I knew wasn't being utilized to influence sessions in 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 the way that I perhaps would like would have liked um and I think you have to be pretty um like I think almost like belligerent in some ways to then force players to comply with this process for the sake of a process and so what we do at what we do at the club I work at now is not necessarily the bells and whistles of everything I've done in previous roles across different uh, across different like organisations or different sports, but it marries nicely with my team, the competency to perform the testing, the technology we've got available, but then that key bit about that impact, and that is the education bit about the player and the coach. It's one of those things that I think can be. Uh, people can put too much weight on is making sure that you're driving everything around that data, but the human element and the context behind it is the, is the key thing. Yeah. Context data, data without context is a hundred percent agree is, is, I mean, it's a waste of time. Right. And I've not been in a position where I've had head coaches who turn around and say, no, we're not doing that. Scrap it or, or whatever. But largely I think because we do a reasonable process of going in and explaining the why. And if you understand the why and the what, then you've got a greater chance of that of that buy-in and how you're going to do it. Accepting the fact that you explain to them in advance, so this is this is what it might mean for you, you know, in advance of that process. And I think that that the, the diagnostic result of that, and I remember back in um, in preseason this year, for example, uh, there was a the player who filled in his sauna scores, and I looked at his his groin squeeze score, and it, it was like there was there was there was an alarm bell that went off. Um, and went to the, I went straight away to the, the head athletic trainer and said to them, look, have you seen this player this morning? Did you see the player last night? He's like, no, I've not seen players, not reported anything. You know, I said, well, did you have a discussion with him? Any concerns? He said, no, we went, we went around all the players and, you know, after training, we checked in with everybody. No one reported for afternoon treatment, you know, or some did, but this, this guy didn't. Um, and, you know, he actually had a problem with his groin that would have been made worse with more training. You know, it was actually onset of osteitis pubis. And, you know, so it was actually, the, it, the data gave us a diagnostic and it gave us an end to a treatment. And I had to go to the coach and say, no, no. so this, sorry, this guy is not available for training today for a medical reason. 
you know, but it was the, it was actually the monitoring that started the conversation that started the diagnosis that started the, you know, so without that, we wouldn't have had that, we wouldn't have had that touch point. And, you know, apart from the fact that there was an annoyance said the player hadn't reported it earlier, you know, but at least what, what was good for me was the player had the confidence in that the data would enable us to enact on it. And he would probably tell the computer something that he wouldn't tell us because he, he would try and hide it, if that makes sense. And obviously in a groin squeeze, you can't, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to hide that either. So those, those sorts of learning points, I think are really useful in our evolution as we move that through. Um, and of course, when, when you come into baseball and things, you've got the other problem as well of, the, you know, again, the players and agents being very nervous about who sees what data and why they see it. You know, so you've got those discussions about, you know, the, the, we want to use this data for your benefit. Um, this data will impact your program. This data will achieve the desired outcome that you want it to, which is you playing better and for longer and harder, you know, and that's the only purpose of it. And this data is not, and, and you know, and then saying to the front office guys, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be really hard for the players to agree to give you access to this data, you know, and look, no one is ever going to deselect a players or not take up an auction on their contract because their jump score wasn't very high on a Tuesday morning. You know, as, as, a, as an extreme example, it's, it's literally, it's down to two factors is what they do, what they do on, on the field. Um, and sometimes the medical history and the medical history is the front office already has access to anyway, you know, so, um, but we'd say the front office that the player will not agree to give us this data if, if you guys have visibility of it. So we'll find a way to communicate what you need to know, but it, it can't be through this data and, and, and please don't ask us for it, you know, because we want to better manage the athletes and everybody's got the same objective, right? Which is the player playing as best as they can play for as long as they can play for, because that means both the organization is doing well and the players doing well. Um, so it's, it's just getting everyone to that collective understanding. Clive, we went quite conceptual last time about uh, what sports science is. You mentioned at the end of the last episode about using uh, sort of scientific detail to make athletes better, but we didn't quite have time to cover it as well. We're obviously joined by Ben today, um, who's, you know, we know used force tests uh, with an injury hat on originally with the ASH test. But how do you personally kind of use force diagnostics to not necessarily just monitor athletes, but to make them better as well? I think there's, I mean, there's no simple answer to that. I think that the, the force plate can tell us a lot from, you know, if, if I know there's guys using it in baseball at the minute with hitters to look at how they're expressing force through their, you know, through their feet and when, and when in a swing they're expressing the force and using it in a skill acquisition context. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've certainly used it with, um, with pitchers, for example, if someone's, you know, a pitching coach has made an observation about, you know, they're not using the lower half in delivery. Well, you know, I've looked at their, uh, you know, a jump on a force platform and said with their, with their hands on the hips and a total body jump. And there should be a significant differential between the two once you bring the arms in. And if there isn't, that tells me that one, do I look at, you know, I look at their power output with their legs only and say, is there a force differential from the legs that's missing? But if, if, the, if the force is there in the legs but isn't transferred through the total body movement, we can completely change the way that we, that we train them in the, in the weight room, for example, by bringing in activities that require more lower body impulse into, a, into an external object. So plyometric stuff, medicine ball work, et cetera, through that coordination. But I, you know, I think for me that 
there's there's a number of ways that you can that you can use um, force diagnostics to move through in both in monitoring and stuff. And I, you know, a really good rehab that comes to mind for me, and I think this is this is probably one of my most um, enjoyable things I worked through in a number of years was was rehabbing a catcher where we completely changed our approach, utilizing diagnostics from a range of different sources and. Um, you know, force diagnostics was one of them to really guide that rehab progression. Um, so we had a, we had a catcher at the Blue Jays who was uh, number one draft pick. He was uh, rated the best catcher in baseball um, for you know for for a period of time, and he had he had three significant shoulder surgeries. Um, you know, he had an impingement, he had a rotator cuff in, interval uh, injury, and he had a labral degeneration, and they all needed surgical intervention to repair and over a two-year process we tried to get the guy back he played he would, couldn't catch couldn't throw it was a designated hitter was doing well at that but really his value to the organization and you know his motivation to play baseball was as a catcher so we really wanted to say look the the more traditional approaches to this rehab are not working so we're gonna we you know we're gonna change that and we're gonna do something very different and Sitting down and saying with the you know with the catching uh, coordinator at the time, what does success look like for this player? What would be for this season a desired outcome? And it was literally it's like, can we get him catching every third game through the season? That's that's what success looks like. So we understood that that was our aim, and we could build towards it. So working with uh, the the catching coordinator, um, the head of rehab uh, physiotherapist with Pat. Um, the strength and conditioning rehab coach and myself, and we put together, and also the sorry, the sports psychologist as well. He was checking in with his player, making sure that, you know the motivation. Because when you've gone through that two year period with an injuries, you know, like he'd had, I mean, this was this guy was having a tough shift for a long time, you know. So um, the the psychologist was a really important part of that process as well to keep things moving forward. And so we had we had a, we broke the we broke the progression down into into a traditional throwing program, which you have. Uh, which is around, you know, throwing from the knees into plain catch, into short toss, into long toss, uh, and then into catching from stance or throwing from stance in the catcher's position. Then, then you incorporate the catching progressions and the hitting progressions. And we mapped out what independently, if we did each of those variables, what would that look like? But then we realized that as catching volume increases, hitting volume probably needs to decrease and, you know, we need to work that. We need to understand what the volume load is as an overall package for this player before ramping things up uh, in isolation in each of those three areas. And before anyone, before he was allowed to progress from one area of a program to another area of a program, there was a series of diagnostic tests that he had to go through. So we were able to map those out. You know, so for example, um, symmetry in an upper quarter YBT might be expected before progressing from long toss. You know, um, so those kind of things. So we had, we had, we had daily tests that we did, um, which was uh, an overhead grip squeeze, uh, a shoulder dynamic motor control, um, uh, a force platform jump test, and they were done. Every, they were done every day to really look at neuromuscular status and how healthy was the shoulder. The player had to report on his uh, soreness levels every day, specifically around the sites of injury. And, and the throwing muscles, it wasn't general soreness, you know, um, on those things. 
Uh, and we measured weekly, we measured total arc, regardless of what stage of the program he was at, just to make sure that we're maintaining those general health parameters around the shoulder. But in then his hitting and throwing progressions, we utilized GPS. And that gave us markers of intensity that weren't there before. You know, so A, a it could count the total numbers of throws that he did, but each throw had a throwing load to it. So we could actually look at, you know, how does the throwing load increasing and decreasing relative to what we expect? And because he's a catcher as well, and, you know, as his stance changes through the rehab progression, we can look at what's the what's the triaxial stress effect of that on his body load um, coming out of it. So we were monitoring those. And each day we would use the diagnostics of what was the work done the previous day and what's his response coming into this morning to change the plan progression. It wasn't just saying there's the plan and we're blindly following it through. It was utilizing the diagnostics to monitor and change and be comfortable with the fact that some days we had to slow down and some days we had to speed up and move things through. And then um, the, we, you know, the ash test became available to us as well. So we were able to utilize that. But interestingly, at the time, we didn't have any baseline data for that. So we didn't know what we were trying to work towards. And we didn't, we didn't say this is what a percentage of looks like. But what it gave us was, you know, the two aims we really wanted to identify were um, in in the three positions, and, and we were doing we were subsequently doing more research as well into into how that can help us with pitching. But in the three positions available to us, was he able to generate an increased amount of force as rehab went on, and is he able to uh, increase the rate at which that force is developed? All right, so. In general terms, as a rehab progression around, you know, around a local area. Now, understanding that when you throw in both as a pitcher and a catcher, it's a total body action, right? But the area of concern that we've got is around the shoulder. So it was a really good local diagnostic for us to be able to guide our things working in the right direction. And, you know, once we've gone through that, then it enables us to structure and say, okay, we can now work towards a structured playing program, working with his, his manager and his franchise the local medical staff at the franchise and say, look, this is the, this is the playing program that we've got in place, but you know, we'll adjust that on a daily basis subsequent to how he responds. You, and it was a data driven, you know, it was a data driven process. The end result was he, he played that year. Um, he went through, uh, he went through to double A, which is the highest level he played, you know, to that point. Um, and I remember talking afterwards to, you know, once he got back playing again and the, the president of the Jays was talking to me and he said, Clive, you know, this is, this is a hundred million dollar player. That's the value of this player to the org. So the return on investment that we put in terms of time and, and, and effort and energy. And it was a, look, the, the collaborative process that went through with all of us talking together every day around this one player and one objective was we all found, I mean, that was, that was great. It was an exciting time. It was really interesting and, and it was fun to do and fun to deliver. But I think that's a really good example about how you can use, you know, diagnostics. And if we had visuals, I'd share to you every day. There was a report that went out with with a dashboard with each of these diagnostics there um, that enabled and informed the discussion. And, you know, you've, you've heard me say it before, it's the, it's the discussion and the expert decisions that are made that drive the, the progress. It's not it's not the data that's collected. That's a great example, again, I think full circle on that, on the last point you made, but also the... Um, the earlier discussions we had today around the benefit of monitoring and why that information needs to be um, fed back into the system early so that you can change the training day. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's the important thing as well. And it, and it was also understanding it was changing a big convention for us amongst our staff as well, because they they had a rehab process in place that, that worked typically. 
Um, so to do something different, you know, we talked about change earlier on. Having having the data in place to say, look, this is this is the effect that we're having by changing the way that we're delivering this. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a revolutionary throwing program by any means. It was just a different way of approaching the problem to be solved. But we could and the data could communicate and inform and evolve. And that subsequently gave us a really good platform to say, look, now we can structure all, re- all rehabs like this. You know, we can break it down into objective stages to pass from one stage to another. There's objective criteria that you that the, the, the player needs to be demonstrating. And it's really great for the player, too, because every day they can now see their progress that comes in. You know, they can see that they're, they, they can see they're getting better. Um, and, you know, even when we, we all know rehabs like they're, they're, they're Groundhog Day at times and this, that and the other. But when you can evidence the player, I know you've done this before, but look at the effect it's having. Look at the impact. Look at where you were three weeks ago relative to now and you know it's not a lot of additional work on their on their daily on their daily basis as such it's you know to collect this data it's the data is collected as part of the process i think that's a that's a that's a key thing to show and it's where things like you know the nord board for example we've all done nordic curls forever right um we might as well do them on a machine that gives us instant feedback you know as to as to what we're doing in some form of diagnostic you're not doing anything different you're still doing a nordic curl you know as, a, as another example. Then Clive mentioned then introducing uh, the ash test um, at a moment during a, a rehab program, but without, um, you know, longitudinal data leading up to that point. So no numbers or reference points, essentially. Um, you know, you've got a great deal of familiarity with force tests and especially that test, of course. But what do you do in those situations where you haven't got that backlog of data um, but you still want to get some meaningful uh, decisions made around using that test or a test. Yeah, and look, other other tests are available um, is the first thing to say there. But um, I think that the the thing about that answer from Clive was, you know, you can see the whole the holistic approach, a massive amount of information built, and and okay, one upper limb force platform test. Um, gives you another piece of the puzzle which may may not be there from from other testing and that's kind of filling that knowledge gap for you to solve that problem which is 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 what we were talking about earlier so in terms of your question um, I think when you don't have that pre-injury baseline then you you can look for people who have done similar in the same you know in the same sort of environment or similar sports um, you know, if someone came to me and asked me that question at the time, would I have had some data on baseball players? Yes. Would I have had it on a specific catcher? We would have had some data on some catchers at that point that I could look at and give a sort of ballpark um, idea of the types of forces we'd expect to see. But essentially what we've seen from looking at ash test data so far is that um, there is a kind of you know, cutoff point or or an average for each um, for each sport, and there are going to be huge differentials in terms of the highest performers in a test and the lowest performers in the test, of course. So, if you start with like a, a median or a mean, and then you base your decisions off that as a cutoff point, I think that's useful. But that's like an absolute value. And the other thing that I think is really important is we normalize it so we make it a relative score. So we look at that versus or force versus their body weight and body weight normalized scores are really useful 
because that's really talking to the kind of human capacity to perform in that test, whatever athlete you are, whether you're male or female from whichever sport. So what's the best ever score in this test from body weight perspective? Um, that's a really useful marker. And then also thinking about the levers is what's the, you know, the relative torque that you're producing. So if you measure limb length and you look at the force produced, what's the difference between those short lever athletes versus those longer lever athletes so that you can actually make a kind of comparison um, across sports, across organizations, and, and you can create a sort of start point. The other thing you've got is the contralateral limb. <laughs> and, um, you know, from, from my side, uh, I think you just, you work it out and you, you build it up yourself. So you've got an asymmetrical sport there with a throwing athlete, potentially. You're not probably going to be looking at the magic eight to 10% asymmetry that you might see in a football player in terms of force production or counter movement jump scores. You're probably going to be having a conversation if they're veering above 15% in terms of difference with the other side as a maximum. All right. But then it comes down to, again, what Clive's talking about, which is that filter. There's your score. We've worked it out as an absolute value, a relative value. We've compared to the opposite side. But now let's sit down as a team and really thrash out whether we believe that that is what our targets are for this particular athlete in that particular phase of a rehab process. And how does that, how does that manage to sustain itself through a period? So we're going to put them through fatiguing rehab. We're going to do upper body sessions. We're going to put them through their sport specific activity. So what happens to it when you measure it before and after activity as well? So we can see then, you know, is it able to withstand loads, whether that's kind of metabolic or physical in terms of force production and more high intensity actions as they go through a rehab process. And that's something that I think you would also use. So there's many factors that you would use rather than pick up a particular a particular score. No, I think that the many factors thing there is is, is really important on that. And, you know, just to pick up a couple of things on there, I think, you know, one one is that actually, like, this guy had been through three surgeries. The chances of us getting him back to baseline again, you know, maybe maybe pretty slim, right? So there's there's something we always have to factor in. That's always an intention that we actually you want to get him better than baseline. But, you know, it's um, that's the objective. So I, I don't know how useful that would have been. And the other interesting thing about absolutes at that point is I think that our our use of the data changes as you go through. So, for example... Before we get to the point where we're looking at uh, magnitude of force or rate of force development, we actually want to make sure the shoulder's stable. And, you know, um, and that's where, for example, the the upper quarter YBT test, for example, might, may have been a better indicator for us earlier on as opposed to magnitude of score that we might see in an ASH test. And the really interesting stuff for us was how does that magnitude go up? Or is it going up? It was going up all the time. But also, what's the shape of the curve that we're seeing and the change in the picture of the force production? that the athlete's able to exert in, in that isolated thing. And that was probably more informative to us as to guiding the progression than it was to get to absolutes. Yeah. And I think you've, you've nailed it there. Clive is, I always used to talk about with the handheld dynamometer, this kind of rate of force development, but I was seeing athletes hit a peak on a handheld dynamometer around two seconds after they'd started to push into, into the, you know, the platform or the platform or the, or the dynamometer itself. And that isn't rate of force development, you know, but it does give you an indication of willingness. And I think people tend to sort of leave 
forced testing too late in a rehab process. And one thing that it does give you is willingness. So, you know, an apprehension test by by its own kind of, you know, by the language that it's used is testing whether someone's comfortable and stable up in this position on the bed, just taking them into external rotation. If you put someone on a force frame or, or on a force platform or use a handheld dynamo, it doesn't matter what it is. Are they comfortable in the position that you're testing them before they've even started to produce force is, is step one. Then are they happy to actually produce force? And if you say to someone at week five post-surgery, okay, we're going to put you in this position. We want you to push, but sub-maximally do what you're comfortable with. Don't push into pain. And then you see what score they produce. That's a great marker for progression then as they get more comfortable throughout the process. So I, I'm happy starting athletes as soon as they can adopt a position. They've got the appropriate mobility. Stick them in that position and ask them what can they produce. And it is a combination of psychology, the willingness, the the lack of apprehension, the lack of inhibition, the structural capacity to produce force, plus the neural capacity to produce force. It tells you so many things about what that athlete can do at that stage of the process. So yeah, I I think it's um it's it's a lot, there's a lot more in force testing than people kind of often discuss. Yeah, and I think that's for me. That's that's the interesting thing is about like we would all, we would all probably do the range of tests, but we might inf- we might use the different tests at different times to inf- you know for for different emphasis if that makes sense, you know. Um, and it reminds me of a real classic example where I've seen that that misuse under discussion with a with a strength coach. Um, and it was within the Blue Jays who came up that we did we did some um, hop testing. And, you know, sort of left to left, right to right, right to left, left to right, looking basically at force generation and force absorption and asymmetrical differences. And he came back and said, look, these these players um, and produced a list of kind of, I think, probably about 40 players from our minor league 200. You know, they've not achieved the cutoff criteria for symmetry. Therefore, they can't progress to the agility test. And I was like, Jesus, we need to we need to cancel baseball. He's like, well, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're you're telling me that they're not they're not capable of going out and doing the you know the agility test that we got, which was a you know reactive dynamic decision making test with changing incorporating change direction. He's like, well, no, they've not they've not reached the cutoff. And I was like, well, damn it, they, these guys go and play baseball every day. They go and they go and sprint around bases. They go and chase balls down. You know, if, if you're a shortstop, then you've got, you know, you've got a ball hit you, an exit velocity of 100 miles an hour off a, off a bat. You've got to react to that and move. Like, we need to pull these guys out of baseball. He's like, well, we can't possibly do that. There's too many of them. I'm like, so what's, what's the point? How can they be functional to do baseball but not functional to do an agility test? He's like, well, I'm just applying the cough, the criteria. And I said, that's, that's, you're right, but you're applying rehab criteria to, performing athletes the context and the criteria has to change as you move through so the test is still a valid one because it gives us information about those athletes the reality is a lot of that was was around test familiarization if you actually went out and did it again with them they'd probably change their score a little bit you know but it gives us viable inf- valuable information but our level of um what's the word how conservative we are around that is different 
with an athlete in rehab than it would be with an athlete in performance. We're looking for different things to inform our decision-making process. And, you know, to your point, Ben, is, is that at each stage of, of any process, you can't apply the same criteria and expect the same decision to be made upon it. You, you might use the same test, but you might be looking for different things as you go through to inform your subsequent decision-making. Obviously, Clive, you've worked in, in in baseball, which we know is a unilateral sport, and, and we're talking about kind of rehab processes. Uh, ben, we, you know, we were mentioning using a test that we don't have any backdated values on, and you, you mentioned using the contralateral limb as your comparator. Uh, in a unilateral sport, if you injure that dominant limb, if you base those values for return on the contralateral limb, you might undercook the performance that the injured limb needs to be at. Can I'm, I'm just curious as an idea, to because this could apply to kind of practitioners everywhere. Could you, you look at the data that you had previously and look at the average uh, difference in performance on tests between left and right in other, if it was the shoulder in other upper body lifts, as an example, what's the, what's the normal difference in their force output left to right? Could you use that as a kind of predictive add on for where the contralateral, you know, the contralateral non-dominant limb is when you're trying to set standards for that injured limb? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make good sense. Um, in between, in between roles, in between my Arsenal job and, um, and my current role, uh, my current day job, um, I, I actually worked in a clinic in London where I was seeing a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, athletes or semi-professional athletes and very interested gym goers and people who are smashing up their shoulders and playing rugby at weekends. And they were coming into a clinic and, I had all the bells and whistles during the day at Arsenal and I went into this clinic and I actually had no, nothing. I had no force plate. I had no handheld dynamometer. I had, I pretty much had a iPhone app for range of motion. Uh, the tilt meter, I think it was um, other tilt apps are available. I'm sure, but that was all I had to make some decisions. So yeah, it's exactly what I did. I often use single arm or single leg um in terms of what they did in the gym and i would use that completely to make up decisions around you know what body weight normal looks like as well i think that's a really useful thing to do and then look at you know even things like using a 1rm calculator as an example to try and set some standards for them so if someone came in to see me i remember climber a climber who came in to see me and i looked at his range of motion it's pretty good um he had a typical impingement um, and I did something which, you know, we haven't talked about, which is actually to use my, my eyes <laughs> to look at how they were moving in front of me to actually get my hands on them and to feel as a physio, I mean, you know, a reasonable amount of physio experience as well. I don't need platforms to actually go through a decent process, but ultimately this guy did want a target. So we said, look, let's go for a bed over row. You're currently doing 24 kilograms and you're a 70 kilogram athlete. Let's get you up around, you know, 32 to 35 in the next four weeks. All right. And that was, you know, you can argue with that, but that was how we set that process up. And I think that's a perfectly valid way. And you're using data science to inform your decision-making process without having to use anything else. Nothing, no high tech. It's not high tech at all. It's what you could find in any gym. And if you don't even have that, you can look at, 
you know, numbers of push-ups, of decent, good technique push-ups to failure, possibly even, dare I say it, a chin-up, perform well and look at like a volume load score. So there's other ways of turning low-tech options into, you know, uh, a way of monitoring processes. And I think that limb dominance thing that you you mentioned is absolutely right you've got to consider that a, a you know a dominant arm has to be producing more force or capable of producing more force than than your non-dominant side and that will vary depending upon the dominance that you utilize within your sport so if you're a you know a, a striking athlete or a combat athlete you are going to be you are going to be definitely more dominant than someone who is bilateral you know, if you saw a rugby play, you'd see maybe those eight to ten percent, or maybe up around twelve percent differences in sides. If you see a tennis player, you're going to be seeing up around sort of twelve to fifteen percent, and maybe more. And I think Matt Jordan talks about those kind of heuristics. There's no hard written rules, but that's a very good start point to judge whether or not that person needs more or less. And actually, most of the time, you can push on their capacity to above what you'd expect. Um, when you when you're setting those goals for a target in terms of a rehab process, I think you, you've hit some really key themes on there that that maybe a lot of people won't actually won't actually realise, you know. But one of the things that we, that always comes down, a lot of, you know, a lot of the physio tests you talked about there are relating to you know isolated local muscle stuff, and obviously what we do in sport is total body kinetic change. Like throwing is a total body action, for example, you know, and it relies on force generation through a single limb. It relies on hip rotation thoracic rotation, shoulder rotation, um, elbow torque, et cetera, the, 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 all of those coming together. Um, so understanding the role that where the isolated testing comes into that total posture picture, I think is really important. But also fundamentally, you know, you said, you know, I use my eyes, I use my experience and my feel, right? No data that we can collect as practitioners is going to replace the trade craft that we've got, you know? That data enhances what we do, but it enhances our tradecraft. If we haven't got the tradecraft, you know, my coach's eye is as valuable, uh, or sorry, is more valuable than any of anything else that that I have, you know, as a as a practitioner. So, you know, when I'm stood on the side of a soccer field and I, you know, I've got the GPS data there live telling me what someone's doing, that data is only informing what I'm seeing. You know, and I'm looking at how they run and where they run. And that's why I always want to be, you know, around the action as much as I can, as opposed to just simply relying on on the numbers, because the numbers don't give you the entire context. And I think that's that's something that you know, people need need to recognize and be, you know, be aware of is that how we use this data is to inform our decisions. Informed decisions are better than uninformed decisions. Right to use a buzz if we're you know if we're not assessing we're guessing I think I used that one before, so for me it's it's important that we try and remove the guesswork as much as we possibly can, and use the derived data to increase our experiential knowledge and inform our coaching eye in what we see, and that's that's on us to be learners right it's like you know I'm I'm this data is enhancing what I do I'm learning what it's seeing. And I'm using that in future so that I can begin to get make better decisions without the data when I don't have it, All right? And and I think it's, it's really important that everyone understands that. And for every high tech, you know, we're lucky we exist in a world with 
you know, a lot of resources where we're able to, to access some, some fairly complex um, equipment, some complex data sets, but also we're able to pick up the phone to the experts in, in the field and, and utilize their expertise as well. But for every high-tech solution, there's going to be a low-tech solution, right? And for every jump test or squeeze test or whatever we do in the morning, I still think fundamentally the most valuable daily monitor that we can do is uh, an RPE and uh, how do you feel this morning? You know, and I, I really, I, I've never come away from those, no matter what objective stuff we do, you know, is trying to look at what, what are the validated RPE measures that we can use to find out how the athlete is actually feeling themselves. And that, you know, that really informs stuff and requires no technology whatsoever. Yeah, Clive, it's the thought process, definitely not the technology that counts. And I think, you know, we, we in judo, we used to ask a fitness to fight question. And for me, that fitness to fight question was probably the most valuable part of my sports science and data science that I used to let me know how the athlete was coping, you know, and, and I had lots of other things that I measured. But funnily enough, when it came back to it, that fitness to fight score, when you trusted those athletes and they knew what you were asking, um, they knew the context of what you were asking as well, that very often matched up with how they were progressing along t- alongside like force production or you know power and other things. If they said they were 60%, they were often producing 60% of their, their force, you know, in the athletes that I was working with. And I think I, I was trying to explain this to a Colombian goalkeeper and I was asking him, he was trying to, this is the probably real context now. And he was, he was wanting to go back to Colombia because in the international breaks at Arsenal, they wanted to, um, they wanted to disappear and he had an AC joint injury. And I said to him, how are you this week? Knowing full well that he wanted to be fit so he could go back to Columbia. And I said, what percentage are you at? 100%. 100%. I said, okay, right, let's frame this for you. Let's frame this question for you. Your AC joint, what's the worst thing you can do? He said, oh, diving, landing, diving and stretching. I said, okay. You're diving, you're landing and stretching out in this next game. For Arsenal in the Premier League, you're reaching for the ball. One of the, I won't name him, but one of the top most heavy brute of a striker is coming in on the ball. In that moment, if you're at your best, that's 100%. You're confident that you can basically block that striker in that stretch position as you land on the elbow with this AC joint problem. What percentage are you at now? He said, all right, okay, I'm 80%. And he went out to training that day. We'd done some force tests before. He went out to training that day, did some like top corner saves, landing on a crash mat to limit the fall and the impact. Came back in and he smashed out an even higher force production when he came in from training. So what he was saying was about 80%. His force production was probably 105% because he wanted to go home to Colombia. Um, but he was being honest with me. And so we agreed that he was probably about 90%. He'd passed every single objective test that we'd given him. All his clinical markers were good as well. There was no way we could stop him getting on that plane. And that's what I told my boss. And that's why I ended up going back to Columbia. And that's sports science. And that, mate, you, for me, you know, <laughs> good athletes will always find a way, right? Um, and I, I can think back to two examples in, in rugby league where the first time we were using his daily scores and a player came to me in pre-season He's like, you're not paying any attention to my scores. I'm not doing them again. I was like, well, what do you mean? I, said, I know you're a five on soreness, which is five was the top, right? 
And I know you're a, you're a one on energy, which is, you know, you got no energy. So what, what more do you want me to know? He said, well, you've not adjusted my program. I'm like, no, dopey. It's preseason. You're supposed to be bloody sore and you're supposed to have no energy. That's well, you're exactly where I want you to be. I don't, why am I adjusting it? But the fact I could recall that and, and tell him that at the time, I think is, is showing it. But what was really funny was when we look back over time, it was, you know, talk about players finding a way and using this was we, we presented a paper on this where we looked at their soreness scores. And typically what you'd see is, you know, game day plus one, everybody's really sore, really tired, no energy. And through the week that would ramp back up again to game day where everyone was no soreness, lots of energy, you know, et cetera, as you see. Then, now then you put, you know, that's that's typically anything in a rugby league in a, in a typical week, you've got six to eight day, eight day turnarounds. Well, then you, have, then you have your Easter period, right? So Easter, you play Saturday, Friday, Sunday, sorry, so Friday, Monday, Saturday. So you have four games in, in that period of time in 14 days, and you have two days, two games with two days in between them, right? And what we would see was they play Saturday, uh, sorry, play, play Good Friday, Saturday morning, soreness, fatigue, like one. Sunday, soreness, fatigue, two. Game day on the Monday, no soreness, no fatigue. We're, we're good to go because it's game day, right? And you knew that wasn't the case, but they'll find a way. And, and good athletes will find a way to be able to do that iris, irrespective of whether the data tells them, look, you didn't sleep well, you're not ready, you're neurologs, but you've got to perform anyway. Like our job, I think, is to say, okay, how do we help you find the way? How do we help you be the player that you need to be um, so that you are you are ready to answer the bell when it's wrong? And I think that's that's important for us to bear in mind, you know, and you've gone away with a happy goalkeeper and our job all the time is to is to is to do what's best for the players and and get them performing when they need to perform. I could happily keep this conversation going and um but looking at the time between us all and and Ben's bedtime having recorded two episodes with him today we're probably going to have to call it a day there. Um Clive thanks very much for coming on genuinely and I don't know about Ben I'm going to stop annoying you for a while but I've definitely got an appetite for a part 3 in the future. So um no thank you very much for coming on. No, my my pleasure. It's always the, the discussions with you guys are always they're always fun, and it's always a, you know a good opportunity to to bat the ideas around and, and bounce off each other. So happy to help whenever I can. Big thanks to Clive for coming back on the show for another stimulating and practical conversation with myself and also Ben this time. If you'd like to receive updates on new episodes, magazines, articles, and more, then follow us on social media. You can find us at Inform Performance on Instagram or Inform Pod on Twitter. Please hit subscribe if you're a regular listener and enjoying the show, but we thank you for listening to another episode of Inform Performance. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.